folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, company on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And uh, what an honor it is to bring in a cad who was part of a collective uh, that uh, made up regional music at a time in this country before full interconnection, uh, before the efficiency model had come into play, before... Uh, people started to uh, put their sound on uh, chips and uh, and become completely um, the the bottom line is that people were able to play themselves um, and be able to serve the songs and if you listen to any pop album or any sort of blues or R&B inflected album in the studios uh, at least through the 70s you can hear the human intimacy of the music the rapport amongst the musicians and sort of the ability for uh, cats to uh, develop their own individual sound and hence get hired back because of their facility and their ability to play within all different styles. And my guest today has seen his fair share of adversity. He's overcome a lot through faith and through, um, I think, simplicity and, you know, recognizing that, uh, you know, in some ways... Uh, he grew up at a time when uh, melodic improvisation or jazz was considered uh, popular music in this country. And, uh, but there were um, absolutely, um, no doubt about it, uh, things that were setbacks if you decided to fully embrace that community, which was essentially a black subculture through the 70s. My guest was able to find his stride and straddle between the Donald Byrd and Doc Severinsen kind of groove and then ultimately find his people at the uh, Open Door Mission, uh, changed his life uh, with uh, some of the most beautiful people that I've ever come in contact with, namely Bill Maxwell and Hadley Hawkinsmith, and a cat that's still out on his fishing boat and uh, has yet to talk to me, Harlan Rogers, but uh, got a chance today to square <laughs> the circle a little bit more. Decorated multi-instrumentalist Fletch Wiley, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, thanks, Jack. You you just laid it out there in a uh, beautiful fashion of the uh, just sort of the history and uh, what an what an interesting time we live in now for musicians. Uh, I guess you know it's kind of like the the tale of two cities: the best of times, the worst of times. But it it music still rises above the fray, I think, and. Uh, kind of seeks its own level and so it's it's great to be with you and you've done some homework i can see my brother well my brother i i mean i i've only <laughs> i've learned from the the cats i mean uh i don't i'm not an academic yeah. i don't read a lot and per se but i definitely um take what i do very seriously and after 10 years and several thousand interviews uh yeah i i definitely have an understanding but i you know i just wanted to ask you right off the top i mean you know it goes both ways, and I know you weren't, you know, active in the bebop scene in, in the 50s at all, but um, I just wonder about uh, when you became enthralled with um, the ideas surrounding jazz, the idea of the jazz life. What was the mm. jazz life? For, <clears throat> what did that look like for, for Fletch Wiley when you first started? Why was it so intriguing and... Was there definitely was there a drug component to it? <laughs> uh, 
checked all those boxes. <laughs> well, now, I, just I, for the record, I mean, I I've interviewed it. David Amram, and that dude was playing oh, with yeah. the cat, but he was stone. He was a so he was a teetotaler. It goes. It went both ways. But in, I've heard a lot of, of people say that if you wanted to be in the club, you had to be using in some way. So I just wanted to get your perspective no, on I, it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll give you just a, a bit of a background. I mean, I grew up in Seattle in the 60s. It was a great place to be for music. There was certainly no racial divide in Seattle. I played with a lot of black guys. Uh, the first band I was in, um, I think I was 14, uh, we, we did James Brown's tunes, and uh, it was a black singer, and he came out in a choir robe singing James Brown tunes. So, uh, you know, it was it was a it was a very fun time. There there was no idea of getting a record deal on anything. You just grew up wanting to learn, wanting to get better, and listen to it. Just a lot of listening, you know, a lot of listening. And I mean, I grew up in the era of. Uh, sort of the end of the big band. I mean, the big bands are still going, but it was that it was, it was trickling down with Stan Ken and, uh, um, all the guys, buddy rich, you know, and, uh, just the different big bands. And of course, big band was big in North Texas when I went there, but that was later on. And these guys in Seattle were some great players. I mean, in fact, uh, Randy Brecker came to town one summer and, just blew everybody away triple playing triple time blues and so there was just a lot to learn but i knew when by the time i was 10 i got my first trumpet and i knew then i was going to be a musician i mean there's something inside of you you know that says uh yeah i love music i mean i played sports i played football and all baseball and everything and i love sports but i just knew I was going to be a musician, and as I progressed, I had a great band director. I mean, we had a big band in junior high, you know, and uh, he was a great jazz alto player and clarinet, and so he encouraged me tremendously. He said, you know, you can do this, and I don't know if that was a good thing or not, but he, he said, you could be a musician, and so I took that and ran with it, wow. and uh, there's a guy in Seattle named Jay Thomas, great trumpet player, sax player flute player who was in our high school band and his dad was a trumpet player as well. So there were just some great guys in town. Um, I think Quincy Jones had left by then, you know, but he was there early on in the forties and fifties and Jimi Hendrix was there in the early sixties and then he left. And, uh, and then I, you know, these guys kept telling me, you need to go to North Texas, go to North Texas to study jazz and which was in the middle of a, cow pasture in denton texas and it, it was a great place i went down there in 1965 and you know came up through the ranks with guys named uh, guys like tom malone a great trombone player and a ranger and uh, lou Rini, great sax player and uh, still these guys are still great players and a bunch of other guys ed soap a great jazz drummer i've interviewed all those so guys had, no i mean i i know i know dean, <laughs> dean parks i mean blue lou Oh, Dean, Bones. Yeah. I mean, all the. I mean, I, I've done, but you know, but I mean, like going back, like when you were you, like there was a cafe there called the Longolin. It was a jazz club, like that. Um, mm. Friesen used to. I, this is like early seventies, but I. I mean, I've. I oh, in, yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah. I interviewed. Yeah, well, Dave Friesen was always there, and 
fact, he would bring he would bring his Bible in. Yes, and I'm like, and this uh, this guy's weird. What in the heck? I'm he telling doing? you, man. Okay, so... I have an audio. I'm going to send you this audio <laughs> later. I, I, I my computer. Please I was, was going to play you this uh, this clip from my interview with him, and he he. I'll read it to you later because it made one of my books. It's so powerful. But he was, oh, no. I, you know, here's the thing. The 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 idea of he talked about going to see train with Jimmy Garrison, I think, and, and McCoy in like the mid sixties and Seattle, the line was out the mm-hmm. door. And then at a certain point, Jimmy, mm-hmm. they had just played like three long burning sets and they were going to play another set. And, and Jimmy's like, Hey man, I need a break. You want to take, take my spot and, and, or no, freezing had just played a set and, 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 and he was tired and Garrison said, do you want to come up and play? And, and uh, and Dave was like, I'm just gassed. I have to take a break. And he regretted that so much because he would have had a chance to play with, with Train. I, I just wonder about uh, your first experience actually like <clears throat> seeing these geniuses. I mean, Charles McPherson would talk mm-hmm. about Mingus uh, in, up in Canada uh, getting, uh, you know, dealing with some uh, football players from Canada. And he'd come off the stage and with a plunger because they were talking too loud during a ballad and he'd throw them across the floor. They, they, you know, there was a lot of insanity going on. But <laughs> I'm just wondering about what, well, what, you know, what what it was about. And I'm not talking about the, the Woody Herman big bands. Like The big bands were in, the, in and of themselves incredible because they toured they did so hundreds of dates a year and it was, you know, yeah. it was a gig. But I mean, like as far as that subculture, when did you first taste that? Well, I was probably, I know I was in high school and, you know, one of the things about being a jazz musician is you always want to play with people that are better than you. Right. And even if you're, even if you're lame, they'll let you play uh, in a session. And there was a club that was underneath the Aurora Bridge, right over Lake Union, and I don't remember the name, but it might have been that club. But they played there some, and they had a kind of a house band. And these guys were a little bit scary, I think, more philosophically than musically, because they were very generous, and I and I really sucked, but they let me play. And, but someone would come and cut in on you if you if you were just sucking so bad, you know. So <laughs> it was kind of a it was it was, it was very competitive. But uh, they would let you play, and if you had the balls to just play, then that go ahead, man. You know, and so I did, and and it was just a proving ground, um, sort of what you know and what you don't know, and uh, you you got to learn a lot. And these guys would would help you, but it was, I want to say it was a little bit scary philosophically, and I don't know why. Uh, I did see these guys later in New York after when I was at Yale for about ten minutes. After North Texas, wow. I would, uh, the weekends I'd, I'd go down to, to New York, and I saw these guys one time, and they were a little bit scary, more in their Reichian philosophy and and their drug use, a lot of heroin and stuff going on. So I don't know. It, it, Wait, can you? I mean, you're me. blowing my mind. What is this? First of all, I want to go back. I want to read you this quote from. This is my second interview with Friesen. <clears throat> he said there was a. I remember Randy Brecker was hanging out at the Longolin uh, in Seattle in the 1960s. We were going down to the Musicians Union and putting notices on musicians' boards for gigs. Randy was telling me about his little brother, Michael, who was going to be a great saxophone player someday because he was practicing 10 hours a day. And then he goes, there was a jazz club in Seattle called the Penthouse. 
It was at the foot of Cherry. Oh, yeah. It that's, was at the foot where, of that's, that, that's where everybody played. That's where I heard Gary Burton there. Yeah. It was at everybody the foot of Cherry there. Street on First Avenue. It was run by a guy named Charlie Puz- oh, yeah. Puzo, who I think used to be a boxer. Hmm. He was a tough guy. I remember when Coltrane came in for the music for the week. The music scared Charlie. I was playing in a jam j- a band with Joe <laughs> Joe Brazil. Mike Mandel was there. So I just I mean, can you talk about those cut sessions? Ultimately, I you're not the yeah. first cat to know uh, to. There were cats that were thrown off the bandstand, drummers that couldn't play the shuffle, you know, but they, <laughs> I, I guess, you know what it is? Like, I, you know, we live in a very, um, just with my two daughters too, like they're, um, I mean, they're just sensitive, you know, and I just wonder about, um, like, it, looking back on it, um, why you didn't just turn tail and run? Why Why did you not quit? What made you want to, to do better, even if they were, even if it was a, if it was yeah. a cut session? Well, there was because you have to you have to make up your mind, and there I, I I think there are you have to do that over and over again in your life. You make up your mind. I'm going to do this because it's not just a one-off thing. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just stick my head down and go for it and practice a lot and play. No, there's uh, there's times throughout your life, in my life anyway, where I've said, Do I really want to play trumpet? This is really painful. You know, I mean, I'm 74 now. I'm practicing more than I have in a long time, but for different reasons, you know. But back then, uh, the penthouse was the club. I heard, like I say, I heard Gary Burton and Steve Swallow there. He was quite young. This was probably 63, 64, maybe maybe 65. I was I was too young to get in there, but I got in somehow. And, were they playing? Were they playing with? Were they playing with Getz, or or they were on their own at that point? No, no, he was on his own. It was just a a, tr- a trio, I think. I don't, I don't know who the drummer was, but I know it was Steve Swallow and, and Gary Burton. He was, uh, there was some voluptuous blonde in the front row that he, he kept looking up at her, you know, as he played. <laughs> I just cracked me up, you know. So, but it didn't miss a beat. He was just unbelievable. So that was the club that everybody came, when they came to town, they played there. And it was, and there was a, a it was funny. There were all these black players. There was old Joe Brazil and young Joe Brazil. And I don't know if they were father and son, but they were great sax players. And uh, uh, there was one time I was in town for the summer from North Texas, and there was a trumpet player named Charles Jefferson that went to Garfield High School. I was at Shoreline. And wow. We had sort of these battle of, battle of the bands. Great guy, great lead player, man. And... Uh, he said, man, we've got a gig with Stevie Wonder. Do you want to play? Because I know I could read. And I said, are you kidding? Of course. <laughs> so we got to play, and it was kind of a big band. It was two trumpets, one bone, a guy named James Gardner that also went to Garfield, and then four saxophone players. And unfortunately, the four guys that played sax were older, and they could not read the music. So Gil Askey, who was the, the arranger for Motown, he fired them all and hired four other younger black guys that could read. And so he was really pissed about that. But that was another little side story that was kind of fun. We got to do two sessions, two uh, rehearsals with Gil, not with Stevie, but with Gil and do the gig. So, but uh, yeah, it was a, it was a unique time of, of just learning how to play uh, and you kind of do it on the fly and there's some academic aspects of it of, when I went to North Texas, it was a great school. I, I want to you stay, you know, because I mean, I, I, I mean, this is really important. Like, I mean, the, the, I, I'm just—I okay. know you were young, 
But like, I just really need to ask you truthfully. I mean, North Texas, uh, Dean Parks. I mean, Bones. I mean, there were like the bands were on fire. Those lab bands that you were probably in, are, you know, those one o'clock yeah. bands were ridiculous. The records that came out are burning. That's because you guys were playing six nights a week. You guys had gigs like that, and I and I just and I just well, I want to ask you. Yeah. I, I just want to ask you in in in, mm-hmm. in your most honest way because there's a lot of people that are handcuffed now. Uh, I remember talking to Billy Childs, and 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 he was so honest about the conundrum facing modern melodic improvisation as it relates to the academy, uh, the 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 Berkeleys and the and the and the schools because. Because he's conflicted because he can be so honest, but then if you transcribe what he says and he puts you put it up online and it starts getting traction, he gets all you know worried because they're paying his salary during COVID. And my question is, can the language that you loved, that you were here, the Harmon Mute Miles, the, the, the Donald Birds, the Blue Mitchells, all this stuff, the stuff I just continually listen to, can you really codify a language of blues and jazz is it i mean i just feel there's a homogenization of sound in our modern era it's a it's a major crisis people are much more into conforming than actually being themselves because that maybe they think that's the only way they're actually going to get in and i just want to ask you truthfully because you came up at a time when the academy was not really i mean there was the languages were not codified you can riff on that any way you want uh well i'm not Sure, exactly what the question is. But the question is: the question is, this, can you yeah, learn? As far as, as, far yeah. as can you learn in a school? Can you learn? Can you learn the language of? Can you learn the authentic language of a street music in the four walls of the academy? Oh, I think. Well, I, I want there to be a better trumpet player, and uh, I mean, what was happening? Well, I mean, uh, Lila May spent a year in North Texas and just totally uh changed the department i think really well, yeah, how, and how did he do that because well just by his writing more than his playing i think because and that was the thing when i was uh, in the one o'clock in 1968 and i think the fall of 69 we had some great writers and they would write what we'd call moonbag charts which were just off the wall moonbag you know, i love played. that line <laughs> Well, it was it was just more existential. Uh, I love it. Um, so, so there was a lot of free flowing stuff there that that was great. That was that would be outside of what you're calling the academic realm of what we play. I mean, we played all of Quincy stuff with Count Basie and uh, the Stan. We had the Stan Kenton book, which was great learning. You know, and D. Barton uh, wrote some charts for us. Uh, called he wrote two uh, this sequel called Man and Woman, and which we premiered at the uh, uh, what was the thing in Seattle that we did in spring of '68? It was the music music educators convention at the Opera House mm-hmm. in Seattle, and it was packed. And it was the one o'clock with Ed Self and Lou and uh, Tom and uh, jazz trombone player named uh, Bruce Fowler. Oh, I've interviewed you know Bruce. Name, I love these guys. They're all my pe- These are all my people, man. It's un- <laughs> Wiley, now you're well, part yeah. of the Brotherhood, man. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and Gary Grant. I don't know if you. Oh, d- I haven't gotten to gr- dude. I need to get that dude. Is the baddest cat yeah. ever, dude. Yeah, I dig him. Yeah. Well, I mean, these guys were. These were all. 
So Gary would push push us as a trumpet section yeah. to be very precise and very powerful. But we played, that was an interesting concert because people started to get up and leave when we started to play because it was jazz. And these are music educators who, who there was such a disdain for jazz. I, it was really hard to believe. That is and good to know. That is really this. good. To, you're telling me that you started to play moonbag tunes and they got up and left. Mm-hmm. Well, I think probably in, they they start they left before we started to play when they heard there was going to be this big band playing from Denton, and uh, because there was there was tension even in North Texas between the the legit folks of opera and classical music and the jazz folks. I don't think I ever felt that. I don't think the professors really felt that. They loved it, you know, but. There were some rivalries, but when we, once we started to play, everybody came back and sat down, and they stayed the whole time. We gave them three standing ovations or something. It was, it was, it's on. There, there is a record of it somewhere, and it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing. Concert. Wait a minute! You're you telling know, me you're Lee telling me you're telling me North Texas Lab Band went to the Opera House in Seattle, and there's a record of this that was pressed. There, there is. I wow. think I have it. It's Whoa! Pretty, no, I mean, pretty bad, that, it's pretty bad quality. But so I just want to explain to me. I, no, I want, I want the the Fletch Wiley, because um, obviously you're, you, you know, very. I mean, if you're the fact that you've wound your way to where you are today is is so spiritual and beautiful and mystical. But why, why has there always even, even the 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 big band? Why, why has there always been? Maybe it's self-evident to you, but why has there always been tension there between the more operatic European classical versus, um, you know, j- jazz? Why, why, yeah. why has there always been that? I think there's some jealousy. Uh, I think the, the uh, jazz department got a lot of notoriety because the players were so good. And honestly, the, the discipline of being a jazz player is so much fun and way more fun than just I, I love classical music I have a degree in trumpet and uh, I went to the Aspen School of Music one summer which is put on by Juilliard and studied with Robert Nagel and that's why I got into Yale uh, for like I say 10 minutes I was I was not in a good way spiritually shall we say I was taking lots of drugs so <laughs> I left there uh, soon after I got there in 1969 but uh but no, the tension is. I think it's it's professional. I think there's, like I say, there's some jealousy. Uh, there's an there's an aspect of legitimacy that they didn't feel like it was a legitimate form of music. That it was barroom. Uh, I mean, there is a social aspect of jazz that is, is hard hard to take. I mean, the the aspect of drugs, the aspect of of the looseness, maybe moral looseness of it sometimes. You know, which is not to say the classical music is not. When I went to the Aspen Music Festival, the guys that uh, turned me on to acid were all classical players. Oh, so my. Wait, wait, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. When when did you, who, when, what, what festival got, you got turned the, on? The, 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 Aspen, the Aspen Music Festival is put on by Juilliard. It's a very prestigious music festival. Great teachers. Oh, my God. Uh, wait, you're telling me you that, know, and, 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 that's, and that's in New York or at New, in New Haven? No, that's in, in, in Aspen, Colorado. Oh my! God. And so those, and so the classical cats were like, "Yo, let's stretch out here some acid." You, they never even, you never even knew what it was. I, I not not until that time. Oh Before my god, that's so players. good to hear, man. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, <laughs> you know, it's it's 
it's part of the fabric of the, the history of music. Uh, it's an unfortunate part, drug use, I think, because people say, well, it opened me up to uh, be more uninhibited about my playing in jazz. And then I'd hear myself playing. I was like, well, that really sucked. You were out of tune and just... You know, you were you were not really in touch. You, you're I not did, really man. in touch. You yeah. felt you felt like you were. You felt like you were, but uh, that had no basis in reality. Now, you know, maybe it, there's some aspect of it help you break you down from. Uh, I know there's some classical players that just to this day can't play jazz. They cannot improvise. It's hmm. it's just very very difficult for them uh, to do. And I understand that, um, but I think there's a there's an aspect of your spiritual life, you know, and of course I, I became a Christian when I was 24 in 1971. We're not, I do not want to rush into this. I do not want to rush into this. We are going to dissect this heavily. Okay. Here's my point. Okay. They're okay. afraid. They're afraid. Okay. We do. They, they're afraid. Those cats are afraid of, of, of hitting the wrong note, even though there's no wrong notes. Right. I mean, the fact is that drugs can, can lower that inhibition to let you stretch out, even if you are out of tune, the paralysis of the classical cats to be able to just—I guess that's my maybe, maybe when you could, if you could talk to the audience about when the first time that you, or one of the earliest times you can remember playing beyond what you knew, and actually it it fell apart, but it turned into mo- the most emboldening experience because to me we're so afraid of failure. Those those classical cats want to play exactly what's on the page, and they want to play it perfectly. Yeah, well, you have to. I know, yeah, but I mean, have, in, you, the you music that I love, I, I'd rather expression. I'd rather see Fletch Wiley out of tune playing to the stars and going for it. <laughs> I want. When did you When did you learn to just go for it? it did that happen before North Texas? Oh yeah, it happened in probably in junior high school. We were encouraged to play jazz in our little stage band. We used to call it a stage band in junior high. So by the time I was 12, 13, 14, I was playing jazz. And we, you know, uh, uh, oh, Shorty Rogers. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. A guy, uh, Shorty was oh just, my God, just the most beautiful soul. And he, he had these, the Shorty Rogers non tets. Those were a nine piece group. He had, <laughs> <laughs> he had little uh, sheet music out on that that we'd buy, and we'd play these uh, West Coast cool jazz non-tets and uh, struggle through those, but they were just a lot of fun, you know. So we, that's it. I got to meet uh, Shorty before he died. What a what a sweet, sweet man, you know, lo- loved God and prayed for people and, and just, and, you know, oh, man. But... Um, so, yeah, when I was early, early on, I, I got into it. My, my mother, who was a piano player, encouraged me uh, to, you know, just play play what you feel, you know. And so I would, and it was terrible. But uh, now there are, there are, there are actually, wrong, no, I mean, that's, but I mean, you, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Go, yeah, there are. Yeah, that's right. There are. No, I know. There I know. are. Oh, I know. yeah. I know. There are some wrong notes out there. But uh, anyway, uh, don't. Don't tell Pharaoh Saunders that. No, but, uh, and, and and Miles would disagree too. I mean, it's only a wrong note if you don't follow it I up. Know, you know, I, I get know. it. I, but you're, 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 yeah, you're, I know, I know. The, the idea is, can you talk to younger <laughs> cats in this day and age? Because it's a different playing field, and obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic. How, how, what would be your advice to them about learning how to get over 
the fear of failure, the fear and, and failure is, I mean, there's mm-hmm. there, that, that is an emboldening thing is, is you have to fail in order to grow in some ways. Yeah. And I just want you to talk oh, to yeah. cats about, think... especially as it relates to being on the bandstand and playing beyond what you know, and going for it to me, like all those cats from buddy Bolden to Louie, my, all those guys went through that dizzy and they were geniuses. You Fletch Wiley, but mm-hmm. what's your advice to younger cats about, Learning to get over that idea of that perfect imperfection is actually perfection. Well, I, I think it starts in learning, and I think I think that there there is a progression, and there's a progression of learning learning the classics in jazz. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to bebop and and before, and then going through that, and then uh, you know you can pick through uh, fusion music. There's some great stuff. I mean, I can sort of consider Pat Metheny a fusion guy sure. because he 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 plays bits and pieces. If, if I were to send, uh, you know, back in the day when they had State Department tours to Russia, I would send Pat Metheny as the, the composite of uh, American jazz and classical put together because they play thematic music, but they play wonderful improvisational solos, and it's such a uh, he and Chick, you know, they do all that, you know, playing wonderful, wonderful music. So learn that, listen to it and learn those. And then today, go beyond that and let yourself uh, experiment with some things with uh, funk and the fusion of classical, the fusion of spoken word, the f- you know, all these different things that are out there that you can uh, and enable you to create something new because I think that's what the you know bebop was new at one time in the 40s and 50s it was a new form of music but they they took on the music of the swing music that was happening in the 30s and 40s and then there was a, a tremendous with Bird and Dizzy and Miles there was just a shift there that happened and it was a major shift so what is the shift what is the next shift you know, but first of all, learn stuff because it's good. It's fun. It's very challenging. Let me ask you though. Can I ask you? You said what was the shift? Make the changes. Yeah. Do you think that how how responsible are rhythm sections for increasing musical vocabulary? Uh, well, because I because mean, the rhythms, yeah, the rhythm, the rhythm of bebop of... is what the rhythms, the rhythms is what you're talking about, and bebop were were insane. That's what changed the vocabulary to a mm-hmm. degree. Yeah, well, that and uh, the chord progressions and yeah. just the overall ethos of that music. And I'm I'm just saying today, if you want to be uh, you want to be more than clever, but to do that, you really have to study the the masters. You know, study the Miles and, and the John Coltrane and all the guys surrounding them, and James Moody, who was such a technician. But also an incredible soloist, you know. I just that guy blows my mind on flute and tenor. So there's a, now there's an academic. That guy was ridiculous, but he also just played circles around everybody around him. And he, his name doesn't get put out there. Much, I agree but, with you. He's totally uh, unsung cat. You know, I mean, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah just brilliant. And uh, but there's there's any number of guys, and you could look at guys like Winton who. You know, he did a classical period where he played brilliant classical trumpet. And now he's more into his jazz and, and blues and going back to 
you know, big spider back satchmo before that, you know? So, uh, I, I, I don't know. I just think that everything's wide open. Don't try to get a record deal. Just try to be a really good player and then try to find your voice and finding your voice just means learning from the old guys, you know, and then some, somehow you're going to start hearing things internally and letting that come out. And then, you know, putting that together with, like you say, rhythm section. I think the rhythm section is a wonderful thing. Or just um, who knows what what the uh, the outworking that of uh, symphony orchestra, you know, chamber orchestra, uh, Dixieland group, just some sort of ensemble where there is live playing. Because I think you opened this up talking about the aspects of guys getting together in the studio and playing, mm-hmm. and or doing live playing. And everything, you know, I do a lot of sequencing now using a digital performer to put parts down and then sending them off to a bass player and then to a guitar player and then to a drummer, you know, and I'm the piano player, which that's lame. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but these are these are more commercial forms. Of, these are songs, uh, sometimes gospel songs or, or uh, singer-songwriter things that they don't want to go into a studio with, they, they want to just do it in, in that fashion or, or I'll be the whole, whole orchestra, you know, and do it that way, which is not the best way to go. It's better to take, you know, there was a reason they had a singer songwriter that gave the uh, song to an arranger that had, that hired players to come in and to do that song in a studio with a singer live. So they could all do it together and then talk about it and, massage the arrangement and just then make it take make it something greater than just a guy in a in a bedroom exactly Dude, fl- your name and then the other part know. of it is well anyway so much to get to with fletch wiley we're you know, this is only set one we have a game on this program called uh name that voice i don't expect well take a listen to it pay attention to the content and we'll come back and break it down it's very hard box to close and I didn't, I didn't want to. <clears throat> in, the, in the end, uh, after doing yoga, which I continued for many years, uh, yoga of, of Master Vishnu Devananda, um, and I, I would go to okay, I'm the Sufis. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm having a hard time uh, understanding what you're saying, man. Well, that's okay. That's not me talking. So it just uh, try. Oh, okay. That was yeah. somebody else. Okay. This is a name. It's called Name That Voice. So just yeah, hang in there. Take a listen. Whatever you, I'll fill you okay. in after. Okay. Yeah. It's not me. Okay. Good. Sorry. The mystical side of Islam and very, very beautiful side of Islam. Unfortunately, we don't hear much about it. We only hear about the the bad side of of Islam, but there are bad people everywhere. Right. Nothing to That's do with right. Religion. That's right. Um, and I used to run into Paul Notion there, who's a drummer with Bill Evans. Oh my God! Who was also uh, a follower of of uh, the Sufi way. The Sufi way is very much like yoga, or, uh, you know, one of the bhakti yoga ways. In any event, after um, seeing a lot of these uh, uh, masters, well, not a lot, but quite a few, uh, I I ended up uh, wanting to be a disciple of Sri Chinmoy. Uh, this would be probably now in late 1970. Um, and so uh, I needed a discipline. Um, I've always believed discipline is really the road to freedom. 
and I still am convinced of that today. It's certainly true in music, but I actually believe it's true in life, too. Um, and so that was, I began quite a rigorous discipline uh, of meditation and uh, yoga practices. And at some point, uh, probably about a year after I became a disciple uh, of Sri Chinmoy, um, I mean, things were going very well. I'd already, uh, Mahavishnu Walkers was running, I mean, we were enjoying just phenomenal success. Um, I mean, not just musically, but commercially, too. This was the biggest surprise of all. And one day, uh, my Guruji, he, he said, so, you know, uh, Mahavishnu, uh, you know, the, the disciples need to need to eat a good meal and cheap. So why don't you open a restaurant? <laughs> and so so that, that's what I did. And, uh, oh, and it was in Queens. And, um, and, and that's why I learned to cook uh, Indian food. <laughs> you know, uh, not very well, but I got better. I, I, I cannot wait to have... To I, wait, hold on for a second. Did you... I still love to do it. Yeah, um, go ahead. The thing, but the thing is, it was, it was, you know, I had to make basically a good meal for a dollar fifty, and uh, even in you know, nineteen seventy-two, uh, that's that's a tough call. And basically, so I was, I was just losing money every month. <clears throat> but it was it was what I, what I considered part of my divine duties, for want of another word. And and I was very happy to, that 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 you know it, it helped people who didn't have much money to come and eat very cheap and good food, vegetarian. In any event, uh, I kept it going for about two years and uh, but it got it got heavy for me in the sense that I really couldn't take care of it. I was touring all the time and, and so I had to allocate um, you know, responsibility to different people and uh, and in the end, uh, after a couple of years, I, I, I said to my guru, I said, Guruji, I, I'm, I'm really having a problem with this, you know. <clears throat> and he said, well, it's okay. He said, you know, you've, you've learned enough, I think, from that experience. And, I, and so I gave it away, actually, the, the restaurant. <laughs> I gave it to a couple of the girl disciples. Ladies. All right, Fletch Wiley, you want to take a guess at who that is? Uh, I'm really not sure. Is well, he that, he he, he kind of. Um, I mean, he he. Uh, that was my fourth interview with uh, John McLaughlin, uh, Mahavishnu. John McLaughlin. That was John McLaughlin. That and really? he has a very mutt. That was John McLaughlin. That was my fourth interview with him, and and he he has a mutt accent. You know, you can't. So it's hard sometimes. You know, garbles or just a very funky accent. But yeah, I and I want to set the table here and just explain. He came to New York. He was New York was obviously you know the tempo was heavy. It was very stressful, um, and so he started at first to go and try to find some sort of spiritual compass. And he wound up at these Sufi dances, <clears throat> and uh, and Paul Motion, the drummer, was there. And then eventually he got uh, his guru became Sri Chimnoy, who had an ashram in Queens. And right when Mahavishnu Orchestra began. Uh, Sri Chimnoy basically, you know, in an unspoken way said to John, well, let's see if you can keep both feet on the ground. You know, you're going to, maybe you're going to have commercial success with this, with this group. But, um, you know, the disciples at the ashram need to eat. 
So can you please open a restaurant and cook a cheap meal for them? And so for like a, a year and a half or more, when he was not on tour, John was cooking cheap South, South Indian cuisine for the disciples at the ashram. And then eventually he couldn't keep up because the commercial success of Mahavishnu was, it was too much. And Sri Chimnoy said, I think you've learned that point. But it was a, it was such a beautiful, to me, it was a lesson in sacrifice, in humbleness. Yeah. And, and, and I just wonder about if you could talk a little bit about before you surrendered to your God, you know, the different avenues of, of spirituality that you may have pursued. Did you, did you, were you agnostic? Can you just talk about leading up to when sure. you, when you found God, wh- what kind of, you know, what kind of paths spiritual, spiritually that you took? Uh, that's a great point. And, uh, I would have never thought that was John McLaughlin because he's so, he sounded Indian, actually. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, man, he, you can't. His, his, you're like, yo, I can't understand you, Jake. I'm like, no, that's McLaughlin. I'm telling you, his his accent is very interesting. Anyway, floor is yours. Yeah, well, yeah, um, well, you know, the Lord is is uh, he he takes us as we are, mm-hmm. you know, and um, like I say, I knew I was going to be a musician. Uh, by the time I was 10, but it, I went through North Texas and it was the sixties and there was lots of drug use and all that. And I, there's a lot of peer pressure and I fell into that and, uh, you know, it was not good. It was, it's not like it was an, an enlightenment period. It was, it, uh, I started out being a trumpet player who used drugs and I was a drug addict who played a little music. And so that really, uh, sort of caught my attention. I mean, I, I married my wife in 1970 when I was 22 and she was 18 and, uh, 18 months later we had a little boy and I was still just struggling with my life and trying to make it. And I was playing with these guys, Bill Maxwell and Harlan Rogers and Hadley Hawkins Smith. We, we had a little band called third Avenue blues band. Uh, the players were great and we were trying to make it, trying to write our own stuff. And, you know, we had a horn section and all that stuff, you know, be the next blood, sweat and tears, Chicago, whatever. But there was always a hunger inside of us to say, this is not all there is. Mm-hmm. And, but I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I messed around with youth groups, Christian youth groups and stuff, but I really thought the last thing I want to be is a Christian, you know, because then you can't play jazz. They won't let you play jazz in the church. I thought so. Um, but uh, it's coming up uh, in October to 50 years when I gave my life to Jesus. And I did it kind of kicking and screaming. You know, I mean, it was, uh, I knew that I needed something in my life. Well, I, we were playing a club in Tulsa and Bill and Harlan were there and great musicians. And, but I noticed that at this point, this particular time, there was something different about them. They had changed. You know, they had been like me, just kind of smoking dope all day long and playing music and being very ambivalent about life and being negative. And but they, their lives have changed. They stopped using drugs, and so I, it caught my attention, and I had to say, man, what what's going on here? So they just shared to me what Jesus did in their life, just completely delivered them from drugs and set them free. It was a freedom they had to live outside of that 
that lifestyle uh, and just just but just still play music, still enjoy uh, their lives, their families, their friends, and enjoy a new life in Christ. And that was real freedom for them. So it's it, it definitely caught my attention. And we so we set up for the gig, and um, they they kind of cheated because they brought this 400 pound Pentecostal preacher drummer with him. And the first thing he said to me is, "Do you believe that Jesus was?" born of a virgin and rose from the dead. And I'm like, man, let's talk about that. I was afraid he was going to sit on me or something, you know? Yeah, dude, I mean, dude, I, I'm, I'm, keep going, man. This First of all, I want to be clear about something. <laughs> I mean, wait, hold on. I, I, uh, I just want to know that um, for the, the record, I was under the impression that nobody really received uh, – Nobody really received. Uh, Jimmy Hill was the guy's name, right? Yeah, Jimmy and Bobby Hill. They were both. But Jimmy was the four hundred pound preacher. Yeah. So I mean, I I was under the impression that no, the, no, this is no. another this is another guy named Bill, Bill Lee. He was he was from up there. Oh uh, wow. You know, we were uh, yeah. yeah. They're from Oklahoma City, but this is a different guy they brought with them for I guess for reinforcements. I love. Here, I but, am loving this dude. So well, I just want to be clear though. <laughs> Third Avenue Blues Band was cooking the groove. But I thought that nobody really, I guess there had to be some, <clears throat> I, I, maybe it was Hadley, but I, I, I didn't know that, that, that Harlan and, and Bill had, had, had received um, the, the Lord's, you know, had, had become converted or whatever the right word is, uh, uh, before the Open Door Mission. But you're saying it, it was before the Open Door Mission. Uh, well, I think that, that maybe had started. But we didn't know anything about it, and uh, yeah, it was before, definitely before we went there. They they were not going there at that time, I think. But uh, I mean, this was just this was all happening fast, right? Like, right. Know, so anyway, so we we started to set up, and they kept telling me, you know, this is this is a Jesus unlike anything you've heard about. I'm like, no kidding. I you know, it's just about the God that loves you, that gave His life for you that uh, loves you right where you are, you know, you don't have, you don't have to change. In fact, you can't change and there's no, you don't have the power to change, hmm. but God will change you and you'll, and you'll want to change. Right. You want to be like him, you know, right. so don't, don't even try. And so I'm listening to all this stuff and trying to uh, put two and two together and figure this out. And so we start playing that night. And the reason we used to like to go to Tulsa was uh, Leon Russell's band was there, and uh, they they grew all their own marijuana, and it was great, you know. So oh, like they have a North they Tulsa, would, North North would, North Tulsa. They, that's so great, dude. They, they would all come there to the club, and we would go get high on breaks. Well, they never showed up, so these guys are like, "Man, why don't you come out to the car and just read the Bible with us?" And I'm like, "What?" I don't want to do that, man. Okay, I'll do that. So this was sort of starting to sink in, and the Lord was was just ministering love to me hmm. and the, the compassion that he had for me because I knew I was a mess. I was lying to my wife about buying drugs and other things, and and I knew I was there's a thing in, in, in the Bible called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it's not condemnation. God never condemns us for our lives, but he will convict, convict us so that he can lead us away from that path of sin that just robs us from knowing God, you know, and loving one another and really receiving love 
And there was a time in my life before I knew Christ that I told my wife, I really don't know how to love you. And that freaked her out, of course, but it was true. I was trying to be honest and just, you know, but so um, anyway, so I'm like trying to wrestle with all these things that are happening. And we, we finished playing the gig and we went back to the hotel and they kept telling me about Jesus. And then they started to pray and I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I don't know what this means, but, but I know I need to change. And there was just a battle in my mind. You know, there, there's a real person called the devil. Okay. I'll just lay that out mm-hmm. there. You might not believe it and think it's a joke, but there is a, there's an adversary to God hmm. that uh, doesn't want you to come to Jesus. And uh, <laughs> I was, so I was experiencing this battle in my head and I just thought, no, I know there's something out there. This, this is right. And I want this. I don't know what this means. And, you know, there might be people listening to us today and they, I don't know what this means, but I need something too. So I just encourage you just to ask God, he's right there next to you. And he wants you to experience his joy that he has for you. So you can ask him to come in, to cleanse you, to, to help me, God, I need you. I don't even know what I need. You know, and this is what happened to us. We started, then I, I, we quit playing club. We started to play this little open door mission. It seated about, I don't know, a hundred people, maybe it packed out and, we became the house band there. <laughs> Dude, I'm, this is, I'm telling you, I, I mean, yeah. I've chronicled this so much with Bill and Hadley. It's one of, it, I, I, I've done hundreds of hours of interviews. I've published four books. Wow. I don't think wow. I've heard a better story than the Open Door Mission. It is the, it is the reason I do my show because basically uh, it was – there was no premeditation. There was it wasn't about the money. Uh, you guys were playing for people that were really down on their luck, and you did it in service yeah. to God. It's like, I mean, I'll just read you this from my interview with Hadley. He said, <clears throat> "I was suffering from clinical depression. I got so depressed on tour with the Third Avenue Blues Band that I tried to take my own life." Luckily, the hospital saved me and pumped the turpentine out of my stomach. I walked away from that but recognized I needed to make a total change. I went back to Oklahoma City. I was still living with my parents. And a friend of mine who I used to play in the clubs with, Jimmy Hill, had become a preacher. He had a place called the Open Door Mission. He said, Hadley, I know you're going through a lot of dark times right now. Why don't you come to worship with us and get around some people that are positive and want to help you grow? That was the beginning of me at the Open Door Mission. I was there two years before. I was there two years before the rest of the Third Avenue blues band started dropping in and coming oh, okay. around. So yeah, yeah that's. Yeah, I didn't even know anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that to me, I mean, that is. But I also want you to talk to people. Don't be naive about the fact that it wasn't like overnight everything became clear, right? I mean, it took a while. Right. But it right. took a while of right. sincere right. faith, right? Well, it took. Um... Well, let me just <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, do what you want. Back yeah. up a go week, ahead. Yeah. A, a week, a week from before I I came to the Lord with this realization that I need something outside of my outside of myself. You know, this sort of self realization thing that wasn't working real good. Okay? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so the, this is literally this is literally let's back up a week. We were in Lawton, Oklahoma, one of the not really great places in the world, <laughs> an army base. And, and we were playing there, and there was another guy playing drums instead of Bill. He had gone on to Nashville to 
barefoot, G- barefoot Jerry, yeah, barefoot Jerry, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, man, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so we were playing, and uh, I was, we were, we, I think we were in somebody's grandparents' house. They weren't there. We were just staying there, and um, I was frying chicken. Okay, this is how God works. I was frying chicken. I cooked some some green beans out of a can, and I put the can on the floor, and I was going to be funny. And I was going to pour the grease on the floor from about three feet high, see oh. if I could do it. Well, I, I fried my big toe. Oh, yeah. So oh, that wasn't fun. So a couple, <laughs> a couple of nights later, I had to go to to an emergency emergency room and get a shot, a tetanus shot, and some other things, you know, because I was just really, I was kind of feverish and delirious. So I didn't go to the gig that night. And about three in the morning, something came over me, and I I heard a voice say. Start reading the Bible and stop taking drugs. Wow. Very sort of practical and uh, just not a, not really an audible voice, but it was strong enough impression that I went in the next room and told the guys who were all getting stoned. And they said, man, you are delirious. And I said, no, this was a very clear voice. And I, I stopped sweating. Uh, you know, I sort of came into my right mind. And, and so I, I said, I don't know what this is, but I know I'm going to check this out. So we finished the gig. Uh, My wife was, we were living with her mom and our son and uh, uh, in Lake Dallas, this little place north, north of Dallas. And uh, we got out the family Bible, this, you know, 500 pound Bible. And we just put our fingers in some passage and started reading. It was like, I can't understand any of this, man. I guess. I guess that was, I was delirious. Oh, whatever, you know. Right. And a week later to the day, uh, I gave my life to the Lord, and the Bible made perfect sense from that point on. Here's what happened. The next day after I prayed, we got up, and then Bill said, well, you know, because I had this big pussy place on my toe. I said, do you want to get healed? And I said, well, yeah, who wouldn't want to get healed? says, well, the Bible says in Mark uh, 16 that if any man lays hands, that uh, you can receive your healing. Lays hands on someone. So I said, yeah, go ahead. I didn't know anything. And so he laid hands, and I saw this pussy place in about 30 seconds get hard and scab over. And I'm like, whoa, what was that? And then he said, uh, wow. well, first of, all, first of all, I knew that I was delivered from drugs instantly. I had a syringe in my suitcase. I was smoking copious amounts of drugs from the time I got up in the uh, marijuana in the morning. I flushed all that stuff down the toilet. I was completely delivered from drugs instantly. I had no desire to use drugs from that point on. Okay. Then, uh, number four, uh, he said, do you want to be filled with the Spirit? Well, for Pentecostals, that means speaking in tongues. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of that or, or not, uh, Jake, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, a manifest, yeah. it's a manifest. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I, I want whatever, you know, whatever you got. <laughs> so he said, well, it's kind of a it's kind of a funny language, and you just, we'll pray for you, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You won't understand exactly, exactly what you're saying, but you'll really feel great, and you'll enjoy it. I said, well, bring it on. So they laid hands, and I started to speak in tongues, speaking in another language that is not English, uh, sometimes it, I think it is a foreign language that we don't know that is an existing language. But for me, it's a completely different, it's a spiritual language that only God understands it, but I still do it to this day, and uh, it's a wonderful thing. So that happened in 1971. 
October 19th, all that. So I can't say my life has been, you know, perfect from that point on. There's been challenges and I've, you know, had times when I've just fallen away from God and did stupid things and abandoned him and, and then come, come back with just a heart of repentance, say, I'm sorry, God, I failed you miserably. You know, so that's why, you know, people say, well, Christians aren't perfect. No kidding. We're, but we have a God who forgives and who gives us multiple chances to come back to him. And, and he'll, you know, he'll never love you more than he does right now. He, his, his love is constant. It's consistent. He'll never stop loving us. You know, and that's the an unbelievable thing. And uh, so that's why I love serving God and being a Christian and being able to tell people about it. That's kind of our mission now. And uh, talking about Turkey, talking about different uh, in India, that's kind of what my wife and I have been on for the last two years is uh, music mission stuff, But which has kind of gotten put on hold with COVID. But in 2019... Uh, we we did a nine week trip to Turkey, Egypt, Albania, Nigeria, and South Africa. Holy cow! Just uh, the first six weeks were a street ministry, just playing some jazz and music, and just sharing the love of Jesus with Muslims, which they were blown away with. And my wife was with me, and they'd always young girls would come up to her, and you know they they they'd figure oh, she must not be from these parts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. She's, She's different, and uh, we've been married 51 years, so, you know, we've got a great history together, and she'd say, yeah, I mean, they, they, these Muslim young girls, you know, in their, in their uh, midriff blouses and cut-up jeans looking very Western, you know, they'd say, do you, do you hate us? Do you hate us because we're Muslims and you're Christians? She'd say, of course not. We love you. We're so happy to be here, and we want you to know that Jesus loves you. And so it began this dialogue. It was just beautiful. You know, this, um, uh, the Muslims, you know, the Islam is kind of a tough thing to follow sometimes because it has a very strict sense of uh, sort of a graceless form of religion that, that you have to follow these laws. And, and of course, you know, following Jesus is full of grace and mercy and truth. And, and we're able to love everybody, you know, no matter what. And, uh, and, but it's a challenge, you know, the secret police in Turkey came and took our passports a couple times because you don't ask them for permission there because they probably won't give it to you. So you just kind of start playing and hope for the best. <laughs> I mean, are you playing like, this is like, so, I mean, this is, the, the fusion of of Christianity and jazz is just so beautiful. I mean, that's just, yeah. are you, are you, I mean, yeah. I want to read you this quote and then, and then get your reaction to it because, um, uh, this is from Friesen. He said, uh, I had been seeking for years since I first started playing bass in 62. Why was I playing music? Now, for you, Fletch, it, it, it appears to me that, that that was answered very early. You knew you were going to be a musician. So that was like, uh, it, that was sort of God at the beginning uh, coming into your life. Um, yeah. But oh, he yeah. said, he or said, he, he said, God, God, God yeah. is always at work. He, God is always at totally. work. Totally. You know. He said, he said, he said, why was, he said, why was I playing music? What were the reasons for it? It wasn't enough for me just to have fun and enjoy it. I wanted to know why I was playing. What preface that was, is there a God that created us all? I started reading different books and talking to people to find out if there was, if there really was a God. I became, now this is the part I want you to talk about because with Maxwell, Hadley, yourself, I love talking to you guys, but I love talking to you about 
this stuff because of the opposite of what he, this is what I'm about to say. He said, um, I became confused by humanity's opinions. I became confused by the vanity and egos and intellectualism. We puff ourselves up and make ourselves important in life. And I just wanted you to talk to people out there about leading a life, a solemn life of faith, but like avoiding the vanity of, you know, you've said some things that are very declarative about God, always working, always at work, willing to forgive. But I just feel a lot of people get turned off when man's view of God comes into play. Like they know, like they really don't. I mean, isn't that part of what it's about is surrendering to the fact that we don't know and that the idea or the pompacity. Oh, yeah. I mean, here's the point. I'm, I, I have a, I'm a, yeah. I'm a Taoist. I received the Tao like 10 years ago. It's not a religion. It's a way of life. It changed my life and I can't even explain how it happened, yeah. but it did. Yeah. But I just feel like it's really disingenuous for a rabbi or a pre or a priest or a, an imam to get up in front of a congregation and say that they are a conduit for information coming through them from God. I feel everybody has God within them. And I just wanted you to talk about how you've avoided vanity in believing that somehow man understands what, you know, I just feel like that's, it's everybody's own personal journey and that, that offends some people because they believe that they're, uh, you know, monotheistic religion is superior in some. I feel like that's where a lot of stuff goes awry, and I wanted to know how you've avoided that over time. How do you know I've avoided it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. I, you know, it just it's just it, when I talk to Maxwell, uh, you know, when I hear him talk about his Christian philosophy, I'm like, you know, if that was the majority, then we'd be in really good shape. It just it's it's yeah. not dogmatic. It's like service. It's just, it's very humble. And somewhere along the line, it got into this whole thing about, you know, conformity and dogma and guilt and shame and judgment and mega churches and, right. and group think. And it's like, no, that's not what it's about, I, at least from my point of view. And I know that you've, you know, I mean, I appreciate you saying that you've strayed, but I also feel like, you know, you've come back to it and now it's like, you're, this is probably the most avant-garde thing I've ever heard of you guys going into relatively dangerous parts of the Middle East and trying to fuse jazz and spirituality. It's one of the coolest things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's a, a, a passage in the Bible, Proverbs 13.10 says, Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Hmm. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Hmm. But if anyone loves God... This this one is known by him. Now that's that's from the book of Proverbs, uh, and so that's that's you know something that is there's there's so much wisdom in the Bible, and uh, I'm just you know I I think that we we walk you know in another place in First Corinthians 13 talks about uh, looking through a glass darkly, you know, and that, that's kind of the chapter on love, you know that. Love never fails, you know, and God mm -hmm. is love. And, mm -hmm. and how we 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 wrestle with this because here, you know, here we are. Uh, I'm a Christian musician. I make money doing records for other Christians, 
and I make money playing in churches and I make money, you know, putting my stamp on people's records, playing trumpet, flugelhorn and flute from my little bedroom studio and stuff. So you're, you're sort of constantly, you don't want to say how great I am, but at the same time you have to say, okay, I can do this. And so there's that tension. You're living in that, that world of, of the, the already and the not yet, you know? And so you have, uh, the Lord, uh, uses your he gives you these gifts to be used by him and he freely gives them to you so there are times in the last year and a half of covid where i've done a lot of freebies for people and you know sometimes i've gotten paid and that's good because i i need to get paid but <laughs> a lot of times it's like it's it's just these guys need it i love them I love sure what doing. Here, i love it you can have it. it's, it's free so so um it's you know, so knowledge tends to puff us up, and we we try to, you know, toot our own horn so that we go, don't get lost in the fray. And yet, really, God it's, God is our boss. He makes a way for us when there is no way. You know, talks about making a way in the desert. You know, when there's nothing, there's no water there. There's we everything we get, we get from Him. I live in the so desert. I know. I do. I I've had. I've been in those perilous. You do, I, dude. I mean, I, I mean, I'm telling you, man. It is so. But I don't, yeah, I have a much wider view of uh, the pantheon of, of the God, uh, you know, I, I feel like, anyway, yeah. I just, you know what it is like, yeah. I do understand, I, I take it very seriously, and I also try to be as, um, I just don't want to be vain about it, I, I, I don't want to pretend, there's yeah. just, there's just yeah. and I feel like there's this cloak of insecurity that, people wrap themselves in to make them more, to make them feel more secure and there's their knowledge of, but they don't, it's, it's, there's a mystical, a magical component to it. I mean, you were saved. You would have been roadkill. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, you would have been dead. You, you would have been, uh, you would not have made uh, it, man. Like, yeah. like, and then the whole thing exactly. is, you know, you could, you could spend all this time saying, well, why do I do it? Did I deserve it? Like why? But no, it's, it's, it, 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 it's your path. And then it's a matter of saying, how can I continue to think for myself, inspire people to, to feel the presence of God, and then also do stuff that incorporates creativity, singularity, uniqueness, and cutting above the morass. I mean, the point is you're doing stuff on records. You have these abilities with the wind instruments to, be unique. I mean, that to me is the definition of success. It's not about how much money you make. It's how can you be singular amidst what everybody else that is doing what you're doing is trying to do. And that's the, that's the key to it. And, and like you said, like, you know, when there's no water, then this oasis appears. And, but like, you know, it's also, anyway, I have another name that voice for you because you just, uh, and, and I want you, I think you may, you may get this one. So just take a listen to it. And we'll come back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, love to me is what makes everything go around. I think that love created the universe. I think that if you if you say you do not believe in God, you're an atheist or whatever. You know, I respect that. Uh, I think we all need to respect uh, how how each other feels about things in life. Um. But for you to say that you don't believe in God, and if you have a little daughter or a little son, and you look in their eyes, you can't tell me that you don't believe in love. Mm -hmm. And to me, 
God is love. So I don't think I need to go any further with that as far as that's concerned. And mm-hmm. I also I also believe that uh that and especially at this time in in the world what's going on out there in the world, it's just insane and we need to hold on to love. We need to hold on to what love is. We need to realize that there's a heavy struggle going on in the world and and I don't think any of us really understand we don't understand it like we we should but I know one thing for sure that this world needs love it always did Jackie DeShannon said it Fletch Wiley do you want to take a guess at who that is Oh man I know that boy I That's know you really, do really I know you do cuz he's also <laughs> he's somebody I speak to on a very regular basis and he also understands my sincerity, my path, and how I stumble around, but he also sees me as a spirit. Uh, that was my first interview with Jim Keltner. Oh, my gosh, Jim Keltner. No, I, well, I, I don't know Jim, so I've just heard Well, but I'm just saying he is very much yeah. like the, what, what you've been talking about. Uh, yeah. You know, he's had, that, he's had these demarcation points in his life where he could have lost everything and God has come in. But I wanted you to just talk to the audience about, um, you know, to me, you guys are, and I'm so humbled to be chronicling it, but, you know, let's face it, your careers got catapulted when Andre Crouch walked into the, you know, open door mission. And, oh, very much. And, and, and oh, so can you talk yeah. about that? that experience, uh, what he was, what Keltner was talking about, but how that relates to this this um sort of path insecure path towards enlightenment and belief in god based on the, when andre walked into the open door yeah very much andre was a he was a very generous soul he was if, if you've heard his music you understand that he had a gift from god right, you know and right. as a as a writer uh, a singer and a pastor uh, his songs were just amazing. When you went to a, an Andre Crouch and the Disciples concert, you heard the gospel for start to finish, and you heard the, the love of God. And he had a way of disarming crowds, uh, especially white crowds. Can you give an example? Can you give an example? Well, just lots of humor, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we this was back in the early seventies when. Uh, Bill and I and Harlan and Hadley joined them. We we had a little band called Sunlight. Oh my God, dude! Please tell me you have an extra. I need an extra LP of that. I I, everyone. I need it, man. I need that album. I need it. That's the greatest gospel album ever, man. Uh, Dude, please, because everybody. Well, you're very you're very kind. Go ahead, man. Go keep going. You're you're very kind. I'll I'll send you a digital copy that I have. Please, digital something, man. I just want to hear. To me, that early seventies. Yeah. Muir, Michael O'Marty, and Sunlight. You can't get any better than that. Go ahead. Yeah, it was fun. And so I, I mean, uh, he was just very, a very generous soul. And, um, you know, he would, I don't want to say spellbinding, because that's not what it was, but he was, people were hungry to be able to worship God with some new music. Back then, it was basically hymns and Southern gospel. Totally. And then the whole the whole Jesus move, uh, music thing started, and uh, 
late 60s, early 70s, Larry Norman and Love Song and guys like that and second chapter of Acts. And so it was a very new thing. I don't think anybody knew what they were doing. We just knew we were musicians who were supposed to write and play music. And so uh, it was the beginning of that. There was a record called Take Me Back that I got to do some arranging on that Bill and Andre produced. And for me, it was my first chance at arranging. And for Bill, it was his first record that he, that he produced with Andre, I think. And it was won a Grammy, and it was just a lot of fun to be around this this whole new thing that was happening. And, you know, it's to be able to use your gifts, it, there's just nothing greater than that, you know, and to use them in a way that's creative and fruitful and uh, blesses God and also blesses people. And so uh, what could be greater than that, you know? And so I toured with him for about three and a half years, and Bill was there a lot longer. But uh, I ended up, you know, having a couple of kids, and it just got hard because we were, we were actually moved from L.A. back to Dallas just so we could be closer to, to uh, uh, Grandma. And because I'd go out and I'd try, one tour was like five weeks, and it was like, I just can't do this anymore. So <laughs> I quit the road and uh, love Andre and, and Sandra and all those guys. It was just such a wonderful time. You know, you live with them more than you live with your family. So, uh, but we had a, just an incredible time. And uh, then I went on to start producing on my own, starting to do my own records. and. 1976, 77 in that area. So, yeah. Let me, I'm just curious about like, um, when you connected with Andre and went out, um, on tour, were you like exclusively, I'm just trying to figure out the first time outside of sunlight and Andre, like, did you wind up doing studio dates in California before you moved back to Texas in the early seventies? And if so, what, 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 maybe you never, oh, yeah. what, what, what kind of set were you doing jingles? What were you doing? Well, I mean, when I was with Andre, I was produ- uh, arranging, Bill always produced Andre stuff in those early days. And I got to arrange some stuff. I arranged half to take me back and just Andre. And I think one other record, just a few rhythm tracks on, Maybe this is another day or something like that. And then Danny Bell Hall, I don't know if you've heard of Danny Bell. She was one of our singers, just a sweet voice, incredible songwriter. I got to do arranging for her records. And so it was basically records. And then when I moved back to Texas, I kept traveling with him for a couple more years and then, you know, started doing my own arranging and producing and stuff. So how do you, so, so, but I'm, what I'm saying is that you weren't like, in the in there with with the with Condoli and and Shorty Rogers, you weren't doing soundtrack work in L.A. or anything no, like that. No, 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 never. I was just with Andre then, and I never, uh, you know, I don't know if I did. I didn't think I had what it took to become a, an L.A. studio guy like Gary Grant, you know, right. or uh, or Bruce Fowler has been, you know, Hans Zimmer's orchestrator for decades, you know. I, did, I didn't have any confidence in myself in that capacity. I've kind of a seat-of-the-pants arranger, and I've done okay in producer. I've done okay doing, through the years, done a bunch of kids' records that have been Grammy-nominated. Yeah, yeah. When was the first uh, one? When was the first one? I think I've seen a bunch of those, but I didn't. When, when the Bullfrog one, when did you, 
was the first one of those it's that actually came a record out. called it was before that called music machine it it uh it sold about a million and a half units and it was a children's record a listening record and they went on and i produced about 20 records for them and a lot of grammy nominations and uh no grammy awards but you know somehow uh Sparrow Records was able to garner nominations for a bunch of those records. And so, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun doing those records. And that's when I really cut my teeth on arranging for orchestra, small chamber orchestras and producing those. And uh, so kind of went on from there to do other artist projects, but just small label stuff and, and custom record stuff and, and then my own jazz records. So, yeah. It's beautiful. I, 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 uh, I just wanted you to talk honestly to my generation uh, and younger um, because, <clears throat> I mean, clearly, you know, it's being a musician has never been easy, but now they're, uh, and you're actually a, g- a good example of somebody who's been very industrious on their own, but there is no studio scene anymore. Um, intellectual property rights are, you know, few, you know, very minuscule in terms of people getting downloads for songs and then getting some sort of equivalent reimbursement or some royalties, it just doesn't happen. And the only way that like musicians can actually make a living as a professional musician is by road dogging it and then selling merchandise at the gigs because the gigs don't even pay that much. And now since the pandemic, the one industry that has basically completely stopped is live domestic touring. And I just wonder... You know, what is your what is your word of encouragement for people that it's getting very listen, we all know musicians are, are a different kind of breed. A lot of them are very eccentric and, and genius, but you know, if somebody took the microphone away from me or took away my yogic practice like this for eighteen months, I'd be in a really bad psychic space. And yeah. I, I re and I know you've been doing a lot of stuff in isolation and doing records for people. But I'm just asking you for the guys that are, you know, south of 50 years old that have barely been able to get by and have done so because of the merch tables and the road dogging. What's your advice to them about staying mentally strong? Yeah, well, that, that's this is a different era. There was there was the golden age of recording, sure, in the 70s and 80s, where uh, guys like Dean Parks were making uh doing triple sessions six days a week exactly for triple scale exactly yeah that's right you could charge no 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 no. gadston (laughs) dude all those guys man gadston triple scale they all charge after a while though you want me you know i'm charging triple scale yeah but that was insane it was happening every week yeah the the labels the labels were printing money back then you know because there was just this huge uh um desire for music and uh so they were able to to uh, capitalize on that and God bless the players. And there, there are still sessions going on in Nashville. I just did a record uh, earlier this year uh, with a full rhythm section in Nashville. So there are some guys that are, that are doing okay. I'm not sure about LA or New York, but Nashville is still, still making music and a few guys are doing okay, but it is a challenge. I, I would just encourage musicians. They, you know, it is a, do-it-yourself kind of thing now where uh, if you're industrious, uh, you can uh, 
you have to be industrious. You have to, you know, not only write the songs and record them and learn how to be somewhat of an engineer on your own system. It's, it's cheap enough now to do that. I mean, the studios back then literally were million dollar studios and there were, there were lots of them, you know? Uh, and, um, so, but now it's, it's up to you to at least make demos, high quality demos, which you can do at home, but you have to learn how to do that. You might need to take a few classes here or there. I know junior colleges, community colleges, a lot of them have really great uh, recording programs where you can learn there how to do record production. And fairly quickly, I'd say in two semesters, you can learn the, the tools at least to uh, with a computer and an audio interface and a microphone and a, a pair of decent speakers to make records. Uh, that's the first step. And of course, we know the, other, the next step uh, marketing and promotion and putting your records out there on all the streaming platforms, iTunes, Amazon, Rhapsody, uh, Spotify, uh, Pandora, uh, and, and then marketing yourself. Now, I would say this, it's, it's not easy, and there's a reason that they used to have people who made records and people who marketed records and people who did radio airplay. Exactly. TV, you know, and there's, and they made a good, all those people made a good living, uh, taking a slice out of, out of your, uh, production. But we were all happy to have that because it, uh, Cause you didn't, it meant because you could focus gonna, on the music. Right. And it was easier to do that. And then, uh, and have tour managers and, uh, road managers and buses and, and clubs and uh, booking agents and all that. So, <laughs> well, let me. This, here's uh, there's, there's no real answer to the question. I mean, I, I guess maybe my. No. I, I don't believe that you would have pursued music as you know as aggressively and as um, as you did if you were. I, part of the infatuation of the time that you came up in was. I mean, we've mentioned a lot of cats before. It was Lee Morgan, Blue Mitchell, Donald Bird. Johnny Coles, Shorty Rogers, Doc Severinsen, uh, you know, I mean, list goes just that's just trumpet players. Everybody had their own individual sound. I don't care if it was a drummer's. Yeah. I mean, everybody you could a lot of times you could just tell people straight from the records who was playing based because they had their I mean, if somebody came up to somebody and said, hey, you sounded great. You sounded just like so and so they want to slip their wrists. It, and now. There's this, right. I can't tell who anybody is. There's a homogenization of sound. So, because you know what? Unique individuality doesn't sell in this new paradigm. And so I just, but see, that's the magic of, of jazz. And, and that's the magic of music is finding your own individual sound. So that was my other question is, aside from trying to figure out how to sing for your supper, is do you, do you have, to, did you ever get to a point in your career when you stopped listening uh to other i know a lot of great jazzers who just would stop listening to records because they were it was forcing it wasn't forcing them but they were comping people as opposed to what they were hearing in their head mm -hmm. and i just wonder when you got to a point when you were like if you ever actually stopped the input oh i don't i don't think i, I ever stopped per se but i think you have to if you're going to be a writer, 
I think that's one way. Uh, we're we're all influenced by so many different styles: right. classical, jazz, blues, folk. You know, everything, and and those are just beautiful influences, and they're very valid. And so we do borrow or steal, as Pablo, Pablo Picasso said, a good. A great artist steals, a bad artist borrows. You know? <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure what that means. I don't but, either, man. That's going to take, take me a minute. Man. Yeah, we, but we do, you know, we do learn, and you want to learn from all those that have gone before you. Uh, I mean, Clifford Brown is probably my favorite trumpet player mm-hmm. of all time because sure. he was not only a great trumpet player, but he he made the changes like nobody's business. You know, he, and he just was he was unique in that sense. You know, so. I, I encourage players to, yeah, at some point, uh, stop listening and start sort of developing your own sound. It's all about sound, first of all. Right. And then your own style. And your own sound is the thing inside you. You know, you. I hear classical players. I hear jazz players. And, and that's a good way to start getting that purity of sound. And, that, and then you want to go off and, and just develop your own sound and, and it's unique to you because it's going to be unique and then i encourage you to write your own songs because there's some things inside you that uh, will want to come out that really reflect your personality but you know i'll just say this after you you will know uh what a guy's personality is after they become fairly uh, ha- uh fluid and have a facility on their instrument and their their personality might be really boring, and it kind of comes out in their playing, <laughs> mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's it's sort of short sighted. It, it has an end, uh, a shelf life, shall we say? <laughs> you want to use this before uh, the, the the middle of next month, you know? Because right. that's, that's it. Right. You know, it expires. Yeah. yeah. And they're yeah yeah their their uh, their personality will your personality will come on your playing. So keep learning, keep keep reading. Keep uh, studying, keep praying, keep drawing close to God, because God, God is a creative being. He can't help being creative. Right. You know, He created all this that's around around us. You know, you can just go outside and look up at the stars. Okay, come on, look at a tree. You know, look at your hand and all the bones and the sinews and the tendons and the muscles and the fingernails and the the vein and the, everything that's involved in that. We didn't make that, okay? You know, it didn't come from the, the the primordial ooze, okay? There was a creator behind your body and about uh, behind your personality and who you are and how you're able to express yourself. So, uh, you know, get in touch with that, and then you'll never stop learning. Fletch Wiley, ninety minutes into set one. Let's let's definitely do set two uh, in the near future, man. It was it, I had such a ball hanging out. Man. I'm, you know, I got to get I got to pull Harlan off that road that boat. He's always fishing, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I have eight more bars left in me, man. I don't, I don't have that much to say. No, I mean, no, dude. We we, we I exhausted your your whole bag, huh? <laughs> Took everything out of your bag. I know. That's it. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't know, man. I'll, I'll, uh, well, we'll see what, no, listen, I, 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 all, all I care about time. is, uh, is that you had a good time. That's all that really matters. Well, listen, and while, uh, Jake, I'm going to, as we hang up, I'm going to email you and some more guys' names. I think, uh, please, I'm going to say, have you talked to this guy? Or please. That guy? I don't do that now. I wanna, don't want to spoil the surprise, but yeah, you know, there are wonderful guys out there just, 
creating things that are so unique. And I'm thinking of one guy right now that you will absolutely love talking to. And, and he'll love to get to know you too, man. This hey, man. Is, dude, been a ball. I, I, man, I had a ball. Fletch, man. Really I can't good. wait to I can't wait to meet you in person when we get past this uh, this, te- this tempest, man. man. But it's really, it, truly, man, that open door mission uh, in all my chronicling of, of our cultural heritage stands above just because it is so <laughs> – it yeah. is so righteously cool. So anyway, man, yeah. much love to you and your family. And uh, I'll have a copy of this up later today on, on new media. And we can uh, you know, uh, pe- get people, get people put great, some smiles man. on people's faces, man. Uh, well, God bless you, man. I'll be praying for you. And like I say, sending you some names and uh, just, just uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's wonderful. Thank you, bro. Yo, man, much. Thank you for your prayers, man. Bless you, man. Okay. God bless you. Bless you later, man. Bye. Nice way to start a week. Nice way to start the week in very murky, uncertain times. Keep the faith. Thanks to Jim Parisi and Power Talk. We'll see you later. Just a little bit up the road.